To Coffee Over Suicide, the dramedy podcast about mental illness and choosing life over death, one cup of coffee at a time. I'm your host, Chris Parker Howard. And today on the show, we've got recovery coach Helen Bratton. Uh, this one's a really special one to me because she was a student of uh, Dr. Rob Kelly, the guy who was my 100th episode. And this was a really fascinating conversation full of all kinds of twists and turns and the the kind of conversation that you'll really only get uh, from uh, talking to someone who's lived an entirely different experience than you have. And this was really phenomenal. The audio quality is what it is because a conversation that takes place all the way across continents uh, is is definitely going to have its challenges, but it's not too rough. I think you can handle it. It's a really phenomenal conversation. I'm not going to talk too much about anything up at the top of the show. I do want to let you know that the podcast is going to be undergoing some changes as we move forward. I'm trying to find out uh, what really works, what's going to be the most help to people out there. And I'm not entirely sure if the podcast by itself is it. So that said, I have developed a, uh, a live conversation that I'm going to be having every single Thursday uh, for two hours every morning and two hours every evening. So there's an opportunity for just about anybody to get involved um, wherever you're at. Uh, that's Just go to coffeeoversuicide.com slash talk. And uh, there you go. That is where you can find the information on that. And then just click the link and I'll meet you there. We'll have a good time. We'll have a conversation. As I say this, it's Thanksgiving. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Uh, did you eat too much? Did you spend time with people that you sometimes have issues with and today you're just going to put it aside? Or did you stay home? What did you do? Tell me about it. Uh, <laughs> I it didn't do a lot. I went to the movies with my wife. We actually... Went out for breakfast and instead got a whole Thanksgiving dinner at a diner just down the street. Um, and that's it. That's that, that was my day. But honestly, what more do you need? I'm very thankful. I've got good people in my life. I've got good friends. Uh, and I've got you. What more do I need? So I'm not going to bore you to tears with any more of this stuff. As you can tell, I'm a little scattered, uh, probably still a little gravy drunk um, at this point, but uh, just know that I care. All right, let's get into this conversation with Helen Bratton. 
jump right in. Yep, sure. Here we are. Good morning, Helen. Hi. Good morning or good afternoon because oh, it's mid afternoon here in the UK. Yes, yes, it is. That's uh, you know I love these uh, uh, cross <laughs> cross the sea conversations. Uh, so definitely. So tell me, tell me exactly uh, where are you talking to me from? I'm talking to you from a place called Bristol. Well, I'm just south of Bristol. Hmm. In the smallest city in the UK called Wells. Ah, nice. It's got a famous cathedral and it's a very special place. But strangely enough, I live in a lunatic asylum. Tell me about that. It's been converted into houses, but it was an old hospital for lunatics and paupers. Yeah, the uh, the architecture over there is... Uh, the a lot of it is very, very old, yeah? Because here, like in, in the States, um, it's – I mean, the oldest thing you're going to find is a couple hundred years. <laughs> but there, it's it's quite a bit different. It's very different. Is it, now, this place is a couple of hundred years old, so – Yeah. Very special. And our cathedral is well beyond that. Well, take me take me back, uh, if you would, as far as you're willing to go. Uh, where <laughs> take you straight back to? Um, yeah, I can even take you back to my mother's womb. Let's do it. Tell me about yeah, that. She was very unhappy in her marriage to my father when she was pregnant with me, whether or not that had detrimental effects, I don't know. She's no longer here with us, so I can't even ask her. But I do know that when I was actually born, she actually didn't want my father nearby because it, the, it was very, very unhappy the marriage and yeah so out i came my mother she wasn't an alcoholic but there was definitely some trauma there through her growing up lived a very privileged lifestyle but she was one of these people that never found happiness and her addictions came out in other ways. Shopping was her drug of choice. Ah. And relationships. She was married four times. My earliest remembrance of really breaking down, and indeed my first thoughts of suicide, were age eight, when she got engaged to one of her many boyfriends. And I was not happy about it. And she came to my room and I was in floods of tears. And she's basically said, tough, this isn't about you. It's to do with me and my happiness. Yeah. And that has sat with me ever since. At eight years old. At eight years old. And I can remember a few days later actually going down to the kitchen and looking at all the knives and thinking, 
how do I do this? But clearly I didn't because I'm still here. Yes. But I did think about it quite a few times after that, looking at medicine cabinets and things. What were your thoughts and, at that um, time? Like, what, what was it you were thinking about yourself? I'd rather be dead. Yeah. I was, I could want for nothing at all, but I just felt lost. Even prior to that, going to the first sort of few schools I went to, I just didn't feel as though I fitted in. I struggled making friends. I felt a bit of an outsider and a bit of a reject. How so? What was so different about you? I just never seemed to click with my peers or feel accepted and wanted. Yeah. So school was a miserable time. Um, as I got older through certainly junior school, I dreaded sort of things like break times where I had to go and mingle because I didn't have the confidence or the self-esteem because I just felt like a nobody. I was that girl who was always picked last when it came to teams. And that bashed me down even further. It only seemed to improve when I got to senior school and I definitely started drinking at that point. Was alcohol something that you were kind of exposed to ever? Did you have any sort of, um, like, what are your earliest memories of alcohol? Did your mom drink a, a little bit or celeb celebratory even? What were your thoughts on it? Yeah, she did drink. All of our family liked to drink. But as I said earlier, she wasn't an alcoholic, mm -hmm. but she did have friends that, yeah, six o'clock were her gin and tonic friends. Mm -hmm. And she always said she never liked drinking alone. And certainly if the kids are in the house and I was always with her. So, but she had a group of friends that, yes, yeah, six o'clock. And when I was sort of nine or 10 years old, I would go and volunteer to go and make the drinks for them mm. and be there in the drinks cupboard testing all the different bottles and when she had dinner parties and things because she was quite sociable i'd be there to help clear up and take round the drinks but in the kitchen taking swigs and certainly by nine years old i was thieving it and pouring it into little bottles to keep in my bedroom mm and topping up the bottles with water in her drinks cupboard so it wasn't noticed and indeed started taking her cigarette ends to smoke those. My sisters were both quite rebellious. Um, my next sister up for me, I remember when, again, I was nine, she got me drunk on vodka she thought it was quite funny yeah. and had me putting her knickers on my head and taking <laughs> photographs and showed her friends 
Like, look at my funny little sister. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pleased that they weren't kept. Anyway. (laughs) Yes, I bet. My mother actually kicked her out of the house when she was actually only 15. But she was going through a difficult stage. And I can still remember running down the road after her, begging her not to go. Uh, in floods of tears and I think that really impacted me because I was then stuck alone with mum she didn't get remarried to that husband that boyfriend and she was a bit of a depressive and she would make me go and while she was having a bath, go and sit on the toilet to talk to her. And the amount of times she would be lying in the bath, wailing and crying. And I was having to be the mother and telling her it's all going to be okay. And she very much, even at a young age, started living her life through me. I had umpteen ponies and horses, which was fantastic for me. But I was pushed to do more that she wants me to do, not particularly what I wanted to yeah. do. That sounds so ungrateful, but I, I don't know if it's a matter of gratitude. Uh, I mean, being your authentic self, being the being the person that you're supposed to be, uh, and discovering the things that you're passionate about, and walking the path that you want to be on, is one of the great privileges of being a human being yeah well i had no idea who i ever was ever i was a lost soul that's for sure and when i then went i went to boarding school for a year and things really took off then tell me about boarding school boarding school it was okay i actually really wanted to go because it I was a weekly boarder, so I only had to come home at weekends. Mm -hmm. Did that distance create any uh, sort of uh, um, boundaries between you and your mother at that point? Not at all. Mm. I had to speak to her every day. She would write to me three times a week. Wow. And she, I saw her at weekends and it was a bit ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) But I guess she was lonely. And then parties started being made available, sort of early teen parties. And my really good friend that I made there, because, again, she was into ponies and things. Mm -hmm. She was like, oh, do you smoke? And I was like, well, I have done, yes, because I'd already been smoking my mother's cigarette butts from about the age of nine. And I was 13 at this stage. And she was like, well, this party we're going to in a couple of weeks, everyone smokes. And we'll be able to get alcohol. And she said, I'll tell you what, I'll get some cigarettes and we'll start smoking at school. And what we did, because at the bottom of the tennis courts, there was a long line of conifers. So there was a lot of cover. So not being particularly good at tennis anyway, it was easy to knock out the balls into the trees, skip round and go and smoke in the trees. <laughs> And that was it. And then I can still remember the first party I went to. Yes, we were drinking. And it was great. And boys were there and I felt relaxed and comfortable. 
And I I was just like, yeah, this is actually great. Yeah. I quite like this. This is fun. I can actually, I'm somebody. Yeah. It, it really takes away those those layers uh, that you put on yourself um those those first few times uh but then uh, there's diminishing returns <laughs> there are and that carried on for a good year mm-hmm. and then i went to a different senior school because that school shut down because it was going bust yeah which was great. So I went to the senior school of my junior school, which was quite nerve-wracking because I was nobody at the junior school. And I was terrified about going up to the senior school. But again, it was okay. I um, made a few friends, but not many. And I had my horse kept at school. And, yeah, there were a few of us who were a bit rebellious. So when we went out riding, we'd take a packet of cigarettes. And at competitions and things, someone would have a bottle of something. Polo matches, there was always booze flowing. I can remember sinking a bottle of gin and falling off a horse trailer. And then being violently sick underneath it. (laughs) But I got away with it. Yeah. Was this something that was uh, pretty normal among your peers? Yes. And because I was a day girl, where as soon as I was able to drive to school, I, of course, could go to shops and supply the boarders and things with their cigarettes and steal alcohol from home to bring in to drink with them. And even better, when I managed to keep my own horse box at school, because... I had a fridge in there and I had a bar in there, which when we were away, had all my mother's wine and gin. And so, yeah, it's amazing how many friends I made then. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like a social and lubricant. <laughs> yeah. And all inhibitions went and started being rather promiscuous. And getting a bad name for myself, really. How did that make you feel? I I mean, did it feel like you were searching for some kind of love and acceptance that you definitely weren't getting somewhere else? Yes. Without a doubt. And when I left school, I didn't choose to go to university then. I pursued the horses for a bit. And again, that was great because... I was away competing a lot because I was actually selected into the Great British squad Wow! as a junior and a young rider. And that was complete freedom from home because I was driving myself at that stage. So there was no one to keep an eye on me. The amount of competitions and even British trials where I was completely hung over and i convinced myself i rode better when i was hung over <laughs> than i did when i was sober it's amazing the things we convince ourselves of uh in like yeah i totally. I, I i actually i had uh friends uh, growing up being a musician i had friends that thought i i actually play the guitar better when i'm high no you don't <laughs> 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 
So tell me, tell me about, tell me about this, this drive that you have, because there's, there seems to be something there as far as your, uh, your, your passion to do things, this idea of, uh, wanting to be more, wanting to do more. Where, where do you think that level to succeed comes from? Because you were feeling so out of sorts at home, but it, it, it sounds like there was sort of a smothering kind of effect happening there. So it wasn't necessarily for lack of attention. Who were you trying to get the attention or the approval of? Anyone and everyone. When I eventually went to university, again, I was just chasing after anyone. Just looking for any sign of proper love and feel love. Yeah. Did it work? No. Wow. And certainly wasn't very good for my reputation. And I was dreadful, <laughs> but it obviously was something I had to do. And it was actually a bit of an interesting thing. I was married for a time, met the man of my dreams, thought this is going to be perfection forever. Mm -hmm. And But it was almost that once I was married and settled and had the kids. I suffered from very severe depression. Mm. And it was probably postnatal depression, but then had my first, then breastfed, and then had my second and did the same. And then, bang, out of the blue, I had the most almighty stroke at 36. Oh, wow. And completely out the blue. I had to be, because we were living in Italy at the time, and I was airlifted from the local hospital to Rome, the biggest, one of the bigger hospitals in Rome, because the medication wasn't working. And when I got to Rome, it was like, yep, we're going to have to operate. And the doctors basically told my family, she's toast unlikely to make it through this operation and it had already been eight hours since the onset of it yeah so the whole so, sort of thing of time obviously my brain was dying by the second and so clearly i made it through the operation put into a coma for two weeks um just before they woke me up again my husband and family were told she's either going to have locked-in syndrome or be a complete vegetable. Forget the person you know. Well, they hadn't met me then. <laughs> and, yeah, I came out of it. It took a while to start talking again. And when I went into a rehab, I kept saying to my husband, all I need is some gin. Just bring me in some gin. We can put some into my drip and I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's how you need to feel normal. Yeah. And, yeah, so I was then sent into rehab once I, or I was sort of stable enough, mm -hmm. 
which took three and a half months as it was. Yeah. And then got walking just about. I am actually paralyzed from the knee down mm. on my left leg and my left arm is paralyzed. Really? Yeah. But luckily I've got movement in my hip. So I've learned to swing my leg and it's basically used as a prop. Mm. And it was in rehab, probably after my first walking session, where I walked about five steps, but it felt as though I'd conquered Mount Everest. Yeah. Just amazing. And I didn't even fall over. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but I was sat on the edge of my bed and just something clicked in my brain. I thought, I'm, I'm alive for a reason. Yeah. Didn't know what it was really at that stage, but I thought with all what was said was going to happen, hasn't happened. And I could sort of vow to myself then that I was going to do the best I could. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I find so uh, untalked about in, in the story that I'm hearing from you is this, uh, this duality of feeling both incredibly driven uh, and very uh, self-depreciating at the same time, and the way that those two often go hand in hand. Did the one drive the other, or did they seem to drive each other? Like if, if you were really striving for something and it wasn't going well, did you beat yourself up about it? Or, or did you beat yourself up about it if it was going well? I've had to improve, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. Very, very easy to beat myself up. I did it well enough for years. Yeah. And my own coach now is very strict on me to not and actually recognize what I am achieving. Yeah. That's a difficult thing to get comfortable with once you've wired yourself to hate everything you're doing. And hated everything about me. Yeah. Totally. And, but no, life just got better and better. I'm coming up to three years sober now and Next month on my sobriety day, I'm actually releasing my first book. Tell me about that. Tell me about the process of, uh, first of all, I, I want to know this. What was your, what was your moment of discovery for knowing that you had to quit the drink, that it had to be done for you? My moment of thinking I've got to quit this. See, even when I was with my husband living in Italy, we had umpteen discussions how we both thought we had a drink problem. Yeah. And I was probably like, okay, let's not worry about it now. Should we have another bottle? <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, we certainly weren't going to do anything about it. And I think we really enabled each other more than anything. Yeah. But I came back to the UK 
Uh, I moved in with my mother who had terminal cancer at the time with my two young children. Mm. And um, she didn't like me drinking as much, but I did the best I could. I decided to move out when she got really poorly because I didn't think it would be fair on her living in the house with two young kids when she was in her last days. Yeah. And then I had as much uh, as I wanted, whenever I wanted it, put my kids in jeopardy every time I took them to school in the morning. Yeah. I did go back to work for a bit, but it just didn't mix. Yeah. I was working in a contact centre when you're severely hung over every day. Does not go hand in hand, especially with extensive brain damage. Right. And then I had a promotion, actually. Uh, again, my brain, because I was so hungover all the time, just didn't really function. And, um, yeah, so I ended up then going back to the contact centre because I couldn't cope with the pressure. Uh, my anxiety and my depression really kicked off. And I ended up taking a year on sick due to anxiety. Yeah. Never even came into my brain that it was due to drinking. Yeah, of course not. I mean, even if that idea had been presented to you, would you have been able to hear it? No, because I remember one of my carers actually saying, Helen, do you think you've got a drink problem? No, I'm no different than anyone else. Right. Look down the street at their recycling boxes. They're all the same as mine. She said, all oh, the difference is, Helen, you live on your own. They're all families. <laughs> yeah. And it was very true. So anyway, I then moved to the house that I'm now in. And... My drinking, again, it had escalated, but it was very easy to always find a reason. I, it's quite a struggle being a single mum. Yes. And with the young kids, they were my excuse to drink. And it was always sort of, oh, if you had to deal with those two, I, you would drink as much as well. Yeah. But actually, they're both wonderful. But it even got to the stage that they would pour me my drinks for me. I remember having a cold and being in bed. My son came up and he said, Mummy, I've made you a drink downstairs. I said, that's very kind, darling. I'll come down in a bit. And he was like, no, no, I want you to come down. I walked downstairs and he poured me a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good sign. Yeah, no. <laughs> Glass of orange juice would have been nicer, but I was like, "That's wonderful, thank you." But yeah, it, it then got to the stage that there was no fun in it. Whenever I drank, I just would fall apart and be all doom and gloom and sobbing into a pillow. And then it got to the stage, whenever I drank, I just wanted to kill myself. And I'd be there planning it all, looking it all up on the internet whilst my children would sleep upstairs. 
and again it was one of my carers we were we had just put out all the recycling bottles to be collected the next day and she said do you think you've got an alcohol dependency no yes i drink a lot but i enjoy it and something must have hit me then because I contacted the next day a friend who I knew that was in the 12-step rooms and I said, Caroline, do you think I'm an alcoholic? She said, I can't tell you that. Go onto this website and do the quiz and give me a call back. So I did as I was told. I was so excited. I got 100%. <laughs> Like, I've never had 100% in a test in my life. And she said, I'll pick you up tomorrow morning and I'll take you to a meeting. Hmm. And like when I had my strokes, though, I got sober. I think they are great, but I needed a bigger answer. I needed to get down to the causes and conditions. Yeah. And that is where I met my wonderful therapist and mentor, coach, business advisor, and he just completely shone a different light onto my sobriety. And yeah, it's just taken it to another level. It was possibly the greatest thing I could have done because he gave me belief that, yeah, you can do anything. Yeah. And I'd had books in my mind before, but starting coaching with him, that's when I thought, yes, Helen, actually, you can do it. You can do anything you want. And I'm also convinced because of the brain damage in the parts of the brain I have had, it's opened up other parts that perhaps I've never used before. Because I always hated school, but <laughs> since studying with him, because I did his training course... I was in the first batch. I know that he's running it again very soon. And, yeah, just... And if anyone wants me to put them in contact with doing the course that he runs, I'd be more than happy to. So if you get in touch with Chris, I'm sure he'll pass on your details to me. Absolutely. But, yeah, I just loved it. And now I just can't stop learning. I don't think I'll be able to do a PhD. Well, I could if I wanted, but it's very expensive to do that over here in the UK. Yeah. Maybe one day. Maybe. N nothing is impossible, but hey, right? I'll be busy enough. <laughs> don't need a PhD to help others. No. And I've now got my own practice as a recovery coach, and I'm accredited with the International Coaching Federation, which... Uh, my coach's course is recognized by. So, yeah, well on the way. And, yeah, just love what I do. My clients are fantastic, getting some amazing results and opening up people's lives, that's for sure. So you say you are uh, three years at this point? Three years, yeah. That's absolutely amazing. So it still feels... Rather fresh, I imagine, in some ways. You can access those feelings pretty easily because they're not so far behind you. 
No, it takes a lot of use of the tools I've been given. Yeah. Yeah, still got the ongoing work on myself. I still see my coach a couple of times a month. And I will always be fully aware of the problems I have. But the more I learn, the more it's going to benefit me as well. And when you go into this initially and you go into your recovery, uh, there's, I imagine that there's sort of a, a, a level of fear and relief happening at the same time. Completely relieved yeah. when I was like, oh, that's the problem. <laughs> And then it was all sort of novelty of doing something new as mm -hmm. well. And yeah, I was completely relieved. Yeah. And now find having found out the causes and conditions of why I even wanted to drink in the first place. Yes, I, I would have been if had I, I would have always been an alcoholic, but. It was just a case of me picking up, and I wanted to know why I got such a buzz and did look to continue. And I think that often can be overlooked, is getting back to the causes and conditions. Yes, it hurts. It is hard work. And, yes, yeah, you peel back the different layers and the hurt that you discover to find out actually how damaged you are is really quite scary at times as well but i now know a lot of it, it is not my fault and indeed it wasn't my mother's fault i'm doing a lot of reading on transgenerational trauma at the moment and that's just fascinating yeah yeah, absolutely. Because my mother did not have a good relationship with her mother. So it had to come from somewhere. So it clearly probably started with her own mother. So my great-grandmother. But unfortunately, that all that generation is long gone now. So it's going to be a bit hard to find out. Yeah. And indeed, my mother's generation... That's all gone now as well. Well, my uncle's, or, well, is alive just, but he's on in his final days, sadly. Yeah. But, and he, when I did try and talk to him about it, he didn't have much knowledge of my mother's relationship with their mother. He was very close to his mother. Whereas I never heard my mother say one good word about her. So it's up to me to now stop that for the sake of my own children. Yeah. Because I don't want that carried on through. And obviously, genetically, they could have a predisposition. And the last thing they need is any more trauma. Yeah. 
they've both been through so much, bless them. And how's your relationship so, with them now? It's good. My youngest, my son, he found when I had my stroke very difficult because we were very close and then suddenly mummy disappeared for six months. Mm -hmm. But we're very good now. My daughter, she's fantastic. And luckily, they're both quite independent. Mm -hmm. And emotionally seem quite resilient although we do do quite a lot of work and very aware of their emotions and i encourage because we weren't encouraged to show our emotions or to speak about how we're feeling yeah at all growing up i wasn't allowed to cry or i had to be my mother's shoulder to cry on And no, it wasn't. It didn't matter how we were feeling about things at all. As I was saying about when she got engaged. Yeah. I wasn't allowed a viewpoint on anything. So, yeah, I do listen to them. Yes, they don't control my life, but I'm very aware of how they're feeling. I luckily have a very good relationship still with my ex-husband and his new wife. He's married very well. I couldn't wish for a better stepmother. She's really a lovely, lovely person. He's done well there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's good co-parenting. Yeah, that's so important. It hasn't been easy, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, because he was the love of my life. And if it wasn't for my acute depression after having the kids... If it wasn't for the fact that I had the stroke and they automatically put you on antidepressants, mm -hmm. I probably would have ended up killing myself anyway, either that or killing him. <laughs> yeah. Because I was just awful. I couldn't have been much fun to be around. An absolute martyr, put myself at the bottom and then buried myself about 10 foot other, under... So everyone else was living well, but no, I had to be the poor me, poor me. Oh, yeah, let's have another bottle. Yeah. But you've got all of these things going on, and it's it, it's a marriage, it's a stroke, it's children, it's alcoholism, depression. You're, you're, pouring, uh, you're pouring a substance over yourself to get through these things, to get through being yourself. Uh, and now it's time to go into a recovery. You've got to recover yourself physically. So you do it. You've got to recover yourself uh, from uh, substance dependence. So you do it. And then you've got to recover yourself from your emotional trauma. So you do it. Absolutely. That's a lot of resilience and a lot of things to overcome after years compounded in a short amount of time. That's incredible. Yeah, 40 years compounded into three years. Well, I've actually had to discover who I am. Yeah. Because I never knew who I was. And 
a lot of people, they wouldn't have known that I had all this going on and an empty soul. But no, I was just, I was just a shell as a child and adolescent. I had no soul. I was a nobody. Yeah. And it's only been in the last three years that I'm really finding out who Helen is. And you know what? I quite like this person. <laughs> yeah, as you should. Uh, you've you've got so much insight into your past. I mean, you, you've certainly been doing a lot of uh, discovery obviously, to have learned where you've gotten to now and to make peace with the kind of person that you are now. Have you made peace with your mother? Luckily, I roughly made peace with her because I did something really horrendous a few months before she did pass. And I'm surprised I was ever allowed back in the house. <laughs> but... Yeah, I did make peace with her just before she passed. And I know that she, although she was pretty much unconscious, she did squeeze my hand. So I think it was acknowledged. Yeah. And are you comfortable inside yourself as far as uh, the forgiveness to, to give your mother for the way things were when when she was having her problems that she didn't get to resolve. Oh, she was. Yeah. I'm doing this for her yeah. because otherwise, because she wouldn't have wanted me to live how she felt all her life. It just makes me so desperately sad. She could have had a really happy life. Yeah. But in her eyes, it was just the worst of the worst. Again, nothing was ever enough. It wasn't good enough and not enough of it. Yeah. Always hard done by. And, yeah, it's so sad to have grown up with that. Uh, no, I'm doing it largely for her and her legacy to stop this. It cannot continue. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely amazing. I cannot wait to read the book. I'm so excited I, for this. I will send you a... Well, it's not being released until... Well, it's going on sale on the 25th of November. So when it comes... When I've pressed the go, I will send you a link. And yeah, please order a copy. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, I... Totally. My doctor, I know you know my doctor, so I have to mention he has been the most incredible man that's come into my life and just opened doors and pushed me through. Them. Yes, he's really, really something. Uh, just a, a phenomenal fellow. And I have to thank him twice now because now I know you. And I don't know if I would be talking to you right now had you not met him. No, exactly. <laughs> it's amazing the way that we affect each other without even knowing it. Definitely. 
and I've now met another great person in my journey, so I'd like to acknowledge <laughs> you, Chris. Thank you. Well, Helen, I could talk to you all evening, as it were, for you. Uh, but I'm very, I'm very excited about the book. I'm very much looking forward to it, and I hope we get to do this again. Definitely, I'd love to. Perhaps when my second book comes out, <laughs> I've got a list going of ideas, so and it's something I really enjoy. And the people that have read the draft, they've actually said, you're actually pretty good at this. <laughs> I was rubbish at school. Yeah. Honestly, I would scrape a B minus in English on a good day. <laughs> yeah, but there is something different about doing something for yourself, doing something you're passionate about. I mean, when you're in school, you're learning, you're learning some skills. Uh, and it's more about being able to have the answer they're looking for. But sometimes you'll find that there are a lot more ways to the same place. Uh, and you've got to find your own. And it sounds like you've found your own. For sure. And also now uh, I've found a love of coffee <laughs> and com considering that Whenever I drank, I just wanted suicide. It's quite <laughs> apt that I did find you. Yes. Well, cheers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Helen, thank you so much. Thanks for talking to me today. My pleasure. And thank you. It's been great to chat to you and stay in touch. I will. And there you have it. See, the conversation was excellent. And... Uh, I really cannot thank everyone enough who listens to this show, who comes on the show to share their story, uh, and who generally is just out there trying to make a difference in the world. Uh, now, if you want to get some more Helen in your life, and I know that you do, go ahead and go to HelenBrattonRecovery.coach, and you can get a free ebook version of her new book that's coming out. Uh, don't miss an opportunity to get that. As for me, I will be seeing you every single Thursday, face to face. Uh, if you want to get involved in that, just go to coffeeoversuicide.com slash talk. Sign up for one of the sessions the day it happens, and I'll see you then. But until then, don't kill yourselves out there.